0: I really should have walked up slower. (laughs) Hate to cut that off. What wonderful music. It's a delight to find myself at First Press Berkeley this morning. Thank you so much for your hospitality and for the love that you have poured out for nearly 40 years on my family. I've always said it's a great privilege, one of the great privileges of my life, to have been the product of a church pillar and a prayer warrior and that uh, holding up of the roof and that praying with the congregation that has been so important in my parents' lives is uh, is so much of that is focused in this congregation. So thank you for the hospitality that you've shown me and for the love that you have poured out on June and Jim Childers. I bring you greetings also from San Francisco Theological Seminary, which I'm happy to say at the annual or the biannual uh, gathering of the National Church just last month. Hmm. Are we still in July? In the early part of this month. Uh, A vote was uh, taken at the General Assembly of the PCUSA to reaffirm the status of San Francisco Theological Seminary as an associated member of the Presbyterian Church USA. Not that that should have been a question, but some people raised that issue. So we are delighted, we are delighted with that. For 150 years, San Francisco Theological Seminary has been the only Presbyterian seminary on the West Coast and has uh, had a lovely relationship with this congregation. I've been thinking about Debbie Whaley and Mary Ellen Azada in particular, we actually have had a number of alums that have served this congregation, but those two young women that were students of mine and that have now gone to be wonderful pastors, I have them, I have them on my mind as I was preparing today's sermon on Mary and her sister Martha. So I don't know if you, those of you who remember Debbie Whaley and Mary Ellen Azada's ministries in this congregation. I don't know if you want to picture them (laughs) as we talk about Mary and Martha today, (laughs) Uh, but I'll I'll let you decide who who to cast in which role. The Scripture lesson today, the gospel assignment from the lectionary is Luke chapter 10 verses 38 to 42. Listen for the Word of God. Now as the crowds went on their way, Jesus entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him. She had a sister named Mary who sat at Jesus' feet and listened to what he was saying. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks, so she came to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her. Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things, but few things are needed, indeed only one. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Be in our words, O Lord, and in our understanding. Be in our hearts and in the loves we bring, be in our lives and set us to praise for we pray in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. We know of course what people thought of Martha, a stick of a woman, a controlling, a bit shrill. It makes me remember a number of years ago now hearing a couple of shock jocks, during a sabbatical trip to Australia, when Hillary was running in the United States for the first time. As you may know, Australia's DJs can make Howard Stern sound like Mr. Rogers. <laughs> and the two that I'm thinking about here were making a feast out of the American presidential politics in general, and about out of Hillary in particular. Her voice was likened to fingernails on chalkboards and various screeching indigenous birds. It was criticized for its loudness and especially for its nagging tone. Who would vote for somebody who sounds like that, they said. She sounds like my mom calling me in for dinner. Who would vote for somebody who sounds like their mom? Indeed. We know what people think about women like that, about Martha. Certainly she does seem to have stepped out of her place. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? That's the key line. Commentators almost always remark on the way she talked to Jesus, seeing it a kind of an uppity-ness they find surprising or off-putting. I don't know. As someone who drove all through the 80s and well into the 90s with an uppity Women Unite bumper sticker on her Datsun hatchback, that's not what I'd be inclined to think. Of course, there are a number of different ways to understand Martha, a number of different ways to interpret this story, and at least one of them, I think, has something for us today. It's a good thing, as another famous Martha might say. It's a good thing because if there ever was a time when followers of Jesus Christ need to know where to put their efforts, it's this time. The gospel tells us little about Martha. She shows up in only two passages, today's small text from Luke, and two longer passages, two longer chapters, John 11 and 12, where uh, John tells a little bit more about the story of Lazarus. Two passages is not much. But fortunately, those texts contain a number of clues that take us well beyond our stereotypes or our usual readings of this text. I don't know if you have them, but a lot of people think that this is a story about one sister who's a doer and another sister who's a beer. I don't know what you think. Um, One sister who's a doer where Jesus praises the beer and scolds the doer. I don't know if that's the way that you're used to thinking about the story. Other people say this is a story about a sister who's a controlling witch and another who's a sweet bobby-soxer, or some people say this is a story about a sister that's just too big for her britches and another sister that sits humbly at Jesus' feet or some combination of all of those things. Actually in Luke, this is a story about a pastor and her sister. Yes, Luke never says, after all, I don't know if you noticed this as you looked at the text today, but Luke never says that the thing that was overwhelming Martha was hospitality. That's something we bring to the story. What was overwhelming Martha was not hospitality, not the washing up and the serving that we generally associate with her work. No, what Luke was referring to that was distracting her was her service, or what the NRSV translated in our reading today as tasks, her service, her diakonia, pastoral service. Recent biblical scholarship has come to see in Martha a church leader. A minister, someone who has taken on not many cooking responsibilities necessarily, but many ministry responsibilities, and to see that understanding of Martha as a more likely interpretation of the story. More likely for three biblical reasons. One, In the time of Luke and John, in the time that the writers of Luke and John were writing, there were of course women followers of Jesus who funded and followed Him during His earthly ministry and who led house-based churches, groups we would call congregations. Since today's passage talks about Martha welcoming Jesus into her home, it certainly suggests that she is one of those householder women analogous, perhaps, to being the pastor of a contemporary um, house church. That's one reason. Another biblical reason, you could say that John's story about Martha running out to meet Jesus, some of you will remember that story about Martha running out to meet Jesus when Lazarus, her brother, was sick, and having that Jesuitical exchange with Jesus. Some people might say that shows that she, and not Mary, was the theologian of the family. After all, Mary never says anything, not in today's text and not in the John texts. Mary never says anything more than to repeat repeat word for word something that Martha has already said, Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. Mary never says anything that Martha has not already said, and Mary doesn't do anything but weep. Martha, not only engages Jesus in theological discussion, but ends up making the kind of declaration that is considered to be the high-water mark of the gospel story. You are the Christ, the Son of God, she says in John's account. You are the Christ, the Son of God, a declaration that occurs Only one other time in all four of the Gospels, and that would be, of course, when Jesus pushes people, Peter to say it. I like to think Martha didn't need the help, but Peter needed to be pushed. And finally, the third biblical clue to our sort of understanding Martha in a little bit different way than we are used to. The third clue, again, the word that Luke uses for service here, for the tasks that were overwhelming Martha, Martha is distracted by, that's the word that he uses all through his writings, all through the book of Luke, all through the book of Acts, eight significant places for pastoral leadership. In fact, I don't know if you remember that passage in the book of Acts this would also be of course Luke writing where uh, Luke tells the story about how the apostles, the disciples got tired of being uh, labored being heavy, heavily burdened with um, table ministry, making the coffee, you know serving the punch. they got tired of having to include that in all their pastoral duties and so in this passage of Matt and in, in Acts they make up a rule that serving coffee and those other things, would now be the work of the deacons. That's the same word, that word for service in that key little passage in Acts is the same word that is applied to Martha today. She's a minister. She's an overwhelmed church leader. So, this is a story about a theologian, a spiritual leader, a long and deep friend of Jesus, a very competent woman, who is anxious. That's right, in this text, Martha's problem is not so much that she is doing too much, that she's too much of a doer. The problem is that she's anxious over all that she sees that must be done, and that is something we know about. You don't have to be a minister, a deacon, a regular churchgoer, much less an uppity woman to empathize with Martha we know about being anxious. All of, all of us who are concerned about the world God loves know about being anxious, about peacemaking and widows, about orphans and what to do with loving our enemies. These are the things that concern many of us. All you have to do is to be part of a lively, faithful congregation like this one, a congregation that feeds the hungry invites the outsider in, celebrates women's ministries, works for peace and justice. All you have to do is to be a busy Presbyterian assigned to perhaps one more committee than it comfortably fits into your monthly schedule. All you have to do is to be someone who is concerned. Like Martha, we are concerned, we are anxious and not for a piddly reason, not for a house-proud reason or a vanity or an ego reason. We are anxious for a legitimate reason, an important and even a noble reason. We are anxious for the wrongs of the world to be put right, to see peace flooding in, to dry tears, to correct egregious errors, to be part of all it takes to bring the good news to a world that needs it. Lord, do you not care, we say. Some interpreters of this text have said that Martha really ticked Jesus off with the way that she talked to him. Lord, do you not care? Do you think Jesus felt insulted? Lord, do you not care? It's a bit passive-aggressive. Do you suppose that was why Jesus was kind of short with her when he came back at her? I don't know. I, I, I just have to say that can't be right because those are the very same words that the disciples got away with during the storm on the sea. Lord, do you not care that we are perishing? Surely it must be okay to mount that kind of a prayer. Lord, do you not care that we have been left out here alone, that the job is too big for us, that Ukraine is devastated, that Uvalde is still reeling, that the planet is heating up? Lord, do you not care? Oh, it must be okay to pray that kind of a prayer to God, don't you think? I think of how the poet Annie Dillard describes the liturgy of the church as words people have successfully aimed at God without getting killed. (laughs) Surely those words are among them, right? Lord help us, Lord we feel alone here, Lord do you not care, and if so, Why does Jesus seem to be shrugging Martha off? Oh, there, there, Martha. Oh, Martha, Martha, he says. You are anxious about many things. Yes, we want to say. Yes, we are anxious about many things, all of them important. (laughs) Why do you suppose Jesus seems to be shrugging Martha off here? A lot of people who preach this text say that Jesus spoke this way to Martha. Because he wanted her to be less of a doer and more of a beer, less go and do, more sit and be. But again, Luke gives us no reason to think that. And that is not what Jesus is saying here. Here, after according to Luke, Jesus had just finished telling the parable of the Good Samaritan he is as much if not more likely to say, go and do. Jesus is certainly not pitting go and do against sit and be in this text. So why then does he say that Mary's is the better part, that what Mary did, her openness to the Word of God or sitting at the feet of the Word of God, her prayer and study of Scripture is the better part? Well, Not, according to Luke, because it's superior to doing. Not because sitting at the feet of God, studying the Word, praying, being open to the Word of God in your life, not because that is somehow superior, but because it's essential to doing. For the Christian, those of us involved in God's ministries of justice, peace, and healing, there is no doing apart from hearing. Apart from the Word of God, doing will wear you out, run you down, leave you anxious, make you sick. Openness to the Word of God, Receiving, praying, studying, hearing the Word of God is the life-giving thing, the one essential thing, the thing that makes go and do possible. God fuels and funds our doing with God's Word. That's the short and long of this story. God fuels and funds our doing with God's Word. That's what Jesus wants Martha to see. Did you ever wonder about that? God fuels and funds our doing with God's Word. Do not let anybody tell you that Jesus prefers His disciples to be mystics or contemplatives or heaven help us seminary professors. Jesus loves mystics and contemplatives and prayer warriors and thank goodness theologians, but Jesus does not privilege them. God gives God's word so that justice, peace, and healing may break out on the earth, so that the work God calls us to do may be sustained. In the Roman Catholic Church, Martha's ministries are remembered every year during this month, the month of July. The Eastern Orthodox churches also celebrate her in June. She is what one of our Orthodox brothers and sisters calls the myrrh bearers, a myrrh bearing woman, because medieval legend has it that Martha was one of the women who went to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body, a myrrh bearer. But one of the most well-known paintings of the time shows Martha with a dragon spread out on her feet. According to that legend, Tarascus, the very embodiment of evil, was described as half animal and half fish, horns on either side of his head, fatter than an ox, longer than a horse, teeth like swords. Martha confronted him with a cross and a few drops of holy water, transforming him into a tame dragon. Interestingly to me, Martha does not slay the dragon, does not kill or trample or behead or disembowel the dragon the way St. George and other boy dragon slayers do. (laughs) No, Martha uses her girdle. Martha uses her girdle to bind Tarascus up and to lead him on a, on a girdle leash through the village. Talk about an early feminist. you got to love the colorful way the medieval stories paint Martha, her courage, and her strength. But my favorite Martha is the Martha captured by Fra Angelico painted on the wall of one of the monk cells in the Convent of San Marco in the 1400s. There it is. I don't know if you can see that, but front and center, look at the front and center of that painting. Front and center are Mary and Martha in the Garden of Gethsemane. Yes, you can see Jesus up in the corner. Yeah, up in the left-hand corner. You can barely make out Jesus praying but it's Martha and Mary that are pictured next to the three sleeping disciples in the Garden of the Gethsemane pose. I like to think that Fra Angelico did that because he was trying to say something about who Martha became, what she learned from Jesus on that day that she was complaining to him about her sister Mary, what she learned and what she afterwards became a dragon slayer fueled by prayer, fueled by the study of God's word, fueled by spiritual practices and Lectio Divina and weekly Bible studies and prayer meetings and women's circles and young mothers' groups, by seminary workshops and certificates and men's breakfasts and online lectures on the finer points of biblical Greek. Someone perhaps whose story inspired Mother Teresa to teach her novices centuries later, no prayer, no faith, no faith, no love, no love, no devotion, no devotion, no service. No prayer, no faith, no faith, no love, no love, no devotion, no devotion, no service. Someone, I think, who got what Jesus was trying to tell her about the better part. I know another someone, and I believe some of you here this morning might be thinking about him too. His name was Ben Weir, had a relationship along with his wife, Carol, to this congregation years ago. In the 1980s, before Ben was a colleague of mine on the faculty of SFTS, He and Carol were seminary professors in Lebanon. Ben was taken hostage during the Civil War there and was held for 16 months. I'm looking out at the congregation. I'm seeing some some people who are too young to remember this chapter of history, but I also see plenty of us who remember the worry of those days, the shock and the fear. uh, Ben's book, Hostage Bound, Hostage Free, tells how he was sustained during those 16 torturous months by daily prayer and Bible reading, not that he had with him, but that he had in his memory banks, from the fact that he had practiced daily prayer and Bible reading for his entire life. He had practiced it every day of his life up to and including the day that he was taken off the street at gunpoint by a Shiite Muslim group. Ben tells how he woke after that first night chained to a radiator, masked, alone in the dark with, of course, no materials, wondering how he would shape his prayer time. I began with what I had, Ben says, memory. Trust in the Lord with all thy heart and lean not to thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge Him and He will direct thy paths." That's what came up first for him, and then stories, story after story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of Gideon, Samuel, and Saul. Day after day, Ben says, he was amazed at how much Scripture, how many hymns, ended up being stored in his memory banks. He spent time reconstructing Jesus' life, Paul's journeys, I thought, man, I'm not sure I could do that. And of course, there was always 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 Romans 8:28. If you know it, say it with me. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to God's purposes. We know what people think about Martha. About mild bespeckled, gentle men who read the Bible daily. But it's not true. So much of it is not true. What is true is that Ben's God, Martha's God, your God, is a God who has a mysterious way of always sustaining us. May it be true for you and for me, amen.